guests share stories about the places they've been and the tricks they've pulled. Yes, they're put on a show. Beldo and Brom will help them. When they once again protest, they'll be recognized. They pull out masks to place over their heads. Feldo starts to believe this might actually work. They, they've apparently tricked, like, uh, a group of, of toads uh, by, like, tying them up with a rope that's they'll, that'll make them handsome. Uh, yeah, turn them into handsome If this had been, like, a, a group that wasn't toads, this would be funnier. Yeah. But we like, fall again. You could have done it with, like, a bandit stupid... group. Like, a group of bandits yeah. or something. Instead of, like, no, we're going to pick on toads, who are, once again, the primitive Which... tribe stereotype. Yes. And uh, we have to dive back into that now. Yeah. Well, but I also want to point out that the way that they do this is Feldo is going to be, because they're going to do this thing called the toad and the caterpillar, the frog and the caterpillar, whatever the mm-hmm. fuck. And, and Feldo is going to be, a, a like, a, a, he's wearing a frog mask and... And Brome is going to be the the lovely like uh uh frog toad whatever princess mm-hmm. maiden who wants to like marry the caterpillar, mm-hmm. like that's what they're gonna do. Yeah. So early that same morning, back with Martin and company, they wake up bleary eyed and tired. The squidgies had spent most of the night calling for drinks. Now, they have to deal with the chaos of breakfast and the prospect of taking the little horde down to the tide pools to play with the adults, or play, while the adults haul in their nets for fish. They have to carry them down piggyback. One at a time. And the queen, yeah, one at a time. And the queen orders they keep a good eye on them. The squidgies all play in various ways, building sandcastles, burying Grum, who's like, I like this. This is comfortable. This sand is cool. And they're like, Grum, stop moving. Yeah. like That little exchange is cute. There's there's this whole thing where like Palum explains like when it's like most days, like the squidgies have to stay up in the cave and he watches them. But when it is a nice, clear day, the, the squidgies get to come down with everybody else and, like, you know, play and have a good time. Which They are part of the society. They're part of the society and they're keeping them safe. And when it's nice outside, it's like, okay, we can watch them. There's not going to be too many other things that are going to cause problems as long as they don't move too far away. And for the most part, the squidgies are pretty calm. Yeah. They're, they're having, having fun. fun. Grum is having the most fun, I think. Um, yeah, I just could not like. Yeah, they said that they buried him up to his neck, and I'm like, and then they did the thing where they gave him a mermaid tail and big honking titties. <laughs> they didn't do that, but you know, as a child, you would have done that. <laughs> so, Dinger, however, chooses to sneak away to climb the cliffs. Of course, he chose the most dangerous stretch of cliff to climb, and Martin's temper finally snaps. He yells insults at Dinger while admonishing him to come down. And for his trouble, he gets a rock thrown at his back by Ambala. She's like, you shut up. Don't talk about my kid that way. Don't be mean to my kid or I'll fucking kill you. Yeah. But before he can retort, they hear a seabird's cry. Dinger was snatched by a gannet. Ambala starts up a wail, saying it was just how her husband had died. And Palum confirms this, only just remembering it from when he was little. So it's implied Palum's been here for most of his life. And he's much which... younger than, like, you would think. And Embala is much older than you would think. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, also remember, which makes me wonder, like, how long has he been here? Was like he enslaved from childhood, potentially, or from babyhood. Uh, mm-hmm. He could have been an orphan. We don't really get a whole lot about Palum yet. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh, now everybody remember from what I googled earlier, because I think by this point we'll be in like episode two, and nobody will remember what I said. Uh. Dinger, again, it is three point six feet. Ginger is like an inch. <laughs> it grabs him by his part of his paw and his like uh, his tail and his tunic. Sack. Yeah, tunic. Well, Martin leaps into action. He grabs the tiny sword the queen used and orders for everyone to get nets and follow him. And I have a long rant here about how I am very mad about all this because this is Brian wanting to get out of the situation while making Martin and the others still look like the good guys. Because, like, what Martin is doing is the right Christian thing to do. Even though they are his enemies, he is still rescuing a child because the child is innocent. A child is not... Like, the child doesn't know. They're just mimicking what is around them. And he is doing the good Christian thing of protecting Mm -hmm. the problem is is that the way everything has been set up this feels bad because it's just making martin look better because oh he's rescuing the stupid savage child (sighs) i think i just heard astrid do a really sad whine same mood astrid um (laughs) the gannet lands at their nest they drop the stun ginger in front of their own two chicks who clatter excitedly at the meal they're like half bald fluffy feathered babies you know they're They're ugly little babies yeah who uh are going to tear ginger apart if they can get their little beaks on him Martin spots this and uses the net as a sort of grappling hook, flinging it up the cliff and climbing on it as he goes upwards. Like, that's very smart. I actually do really like, like, this bit is written very well. I'm just mad at the uh, context it's written in. the High Beasts had been written better, this would feel less bad. But they were not. It would be good. Like, this would be fun. Yeah. Below, Rose starts to weave four nets together. Shrews keep getting in her way, and when she tells them to leave, one of them kicks at her. Like, they're basically, they're trying to see what's going on and running around. They're panicking and stepping all over the nets, and she's like, you guys need to fucking stop. And, like, they, they're like, you know, yell at us. And they try to kick at her. And... <sighs> Ambala bites the offender and tells the rest to clear off. She sees what Rose is trying to do. This is where... I know for a fact that all of them can understand them. Exactly. Like Ambala yelling at Martin uh, and then Rose doing this and Ambala telling, like, first of all, Rose doing this and telling them to fucking stop. And all of the the shrews being like, you know, tell us what to do. You fucking cheeky mouse. And Ambala's like, y'all stop that. She's trying. She's trying to help. That's what she just said. Like, they understand these, these fucking mice. They understand them. You know, you know. So Dinger wakes up and begins screaming for help. Martin is only about three more net lengths away from the nest. Dinger looks over the edge, crying out for help again. Like he's really pitiful in this scene. The gannet. I see it right there. The huge bird tossed him against the side of the nest. Dinger curled up tight as the two hungry chicks tried to crane their floppy necks over the edge of the nest to get at him. The queen hides her face and is comforted by Rose, 
Rose promises that Martin is a great warrior and she clings to the mouse for comfort. Like here we have like the queen, like he's allowing her to show like a genuine emotion. Like she's terrified. She doesn't want to lose her child. She's already lost her husband and now she might lose her son. This is where Brian is pushing at those like boundaries of his comfort zone. But the, 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 the bit like literally written in the text seemed to understand Rose sent me into a fucking fit last night. Like again, this is where I really started yelling. Like, how did this not, how did it not click? How did he not realize that this was wrong to write? Like, ah, (sighs) Martin reaches the ledge and begins combat with the gannet. It's not happy to have him near the nest and prepares an attack. Knowing he has little time, Martin calls out for them to prepare the nets below. Rose hears and with Ambala's help gets the shrews to help pull the nets tight. Like Ambala's like, hey, y'all stop milling around, get the nets. Um, Martin gets Dinger to move. The gannet tries to snatch the baby back, but Martin retaliates with a sword. Like he smacks the inside of the bird's mouth. In return, he gets a bad peck to the side, bad enough to draw blood. When Dinger hesitates, Martin kicks his little backside and sends the squidgy hurtling into the net below. Basically, Martin gets between the gannet and the nest where Dinger is and is like, Dinger, you need to get to the edge of the fucking thing and I will cover you. And Dinger kind of like does that, like crawls over. And then he's like, okay, Mm -hmm. you need to go over the side. You need to jump. And Dinger's like, no, it's too high because he's a fucking baby. And... I feel bad that I did actually kind of chuckle at this scene because as bad as it is, it is written in a very comedic way. Martin literally like kicks Dinger's butt over the edge and he, you know, falls Mm -hmm. into the net. Uh, And like, yeah, jump, uh, jump, Dinger, jump. Martin hissed at him. No jump, no jump. Dinger afraid. There was nothing else for it. Martin turned swiftly and gave the baby pygmy shrew a hefty kick on the bottom that sent him flying outwards over the edge. Eek! Whoop! Dinger bounced up and down in the center of the net. Saved! Yeah. And, you know, sometimes that's just what you have to do to, like... Because children are... If they're scared, they're, they don't have the same level of self-preservation that adults do. Uh, exactly. But... Yeah, it, <laughs> The Gannet is fucking yeah. pissed about this, obviously. Yeah. And, but Martin manages to get the Gannet tangled in the net. He doesn't want to kill it since it's simply protecting its chicks. And it's like, hey, here's another moment of Brian actually having a bit of awareness. It's an animal just being an animal. It's not being evil. So Martin loosens the net just enough to let it get loose, then leaps for the net below. He lands safely. Rose tends to the wound to, on his side with a bit of cloth from her tunic. Like she just tears it off and she's just like, you're hurt. And he's just like, yeah, I guess. Um, Ambala comes over offering Martin anything he wants out of gratitude. Palum and the rest are shocked. He's never heard this promise made before. So Martin goes to each captive, including Palum, and cuts them free of their logs, declaring they want to be free. And like everything stops. But then Ambala agrees, like no hesitation. She's like, good, you're free. That's it. That's what you get. Like no hesitation, no whinging or going back on her word. She sticks to it. Like we're shown that she does have her pride and she does stick to her word. You know, she's not being sneaky or double crossing about this. They let them go. 
Which again is where we see Brian pushing at his comfort zone on this. Um, Palum also cries because he's never not had that log attached to him. Yeah. As the four begin to walk away, Dinger runs up and smacks Martin full on the face with a stick. Like it's a full on little legs going as fast as they can. His entire little body behind it smack. Yelling angrily about how Martin had kicked him. Like I'm going to kill you. Um, well, his mother is quick to react. She grabs the stick, snaps it in half, and then proceeds to spank Dinger, saying he was, as Martin had said, a stupid little beast. And Grum chuckles as they walk away, saying the sound was like music to his ears. And it's like, remember, everybody, beating a child is funny if the child is spoiled. Uh, let's see. Remember, it's also if they're getting their just desserts for, checks my notes, not being raised properly by their parents and acting out because they don't know any better and also have been through a traumatizing experience. <sighs> but that's it. The worst part of this part of the book is done. It's We're done with them. They're gone. From We're from this done part with anyway. them. Hopefully they never show Although back up I was, again. I was forewarned we might end up with a lizard or toad tribe later through right. the book, but you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, I, I still, I think my favorite lizard tribe has been the one in the swamp who are just like, what are you doing Yeah, here? the ones that were like kind of <laughs> regal, like they were just dragons and they were just like, what the fuck? Yeah. What the <laughs> What are these fuck? weird hairy things in our swamp? <laughs> and, well, they, well, well, everybody was trying to be like all big and tough and like puffed up like, and they were just like, we don't care. We eat yeah, crazy. You're just an entertaining what? show. Yeah. Clog has left Marshank to go see what sad remains of his ship are left. Inside Marshank, Droop is given a small feast. His appetite has left him, though. Badrang isn't satisfied with the information he's given and glowers down at the self-proclaimed spy. He calls Droop out on the vagaries that he's told him. He wants hard facts. So Droop says he knows where the weapons are hidden. He says they're under Tulgru's sleeping spot. Finally pleased, Badrang takes a group to go check on this information. With Badrang gone, Droop finally gets his nerve and appetite back. He's all too happy to dig into the feast now, secure that he's won his place as a spy. And I find this fascinating that this is the first time I think we've seen a non-vermin animal eating a yeah, bird. Yeah, he like rips off the leg of like a seabird and starts eating it as well as taking like some fish and like other stuff. And yeah, and like he's the way he's eating and the way he's talking is very much portrayed as a vermin-like manner and attitude, which I find fascinating. There's a lot of like, I, I kind of poked at this last night. I was a little sleepy when I came to this one. But uh, mm -hmm. it, there, there's a little bit of that kind of, like, they eat fish. It's got a bit of a, like, Catholic vibe to it. Because, uh, like, I, I know my brain is... I know I've read somewhere. I think Go my ahead. brain is stuck on that because Lent just started. Yeah. <laughs> and Chevy can't um, but I... eat on Fridays except for fish. Uh, but it's, like... Sh and beaver, because beaver are classified as fish. Yeah. God. <laughs> In the Catholic Church. I don't think they are anymore. <laughs> I know, but it's one of my favorite little facts of them. Like, well, they live in the water, so technically they're fish. But yeah, like, they don't um, eat, like... It's got, like, some weird kind of religious connotation. Like, they don't eat meat 
it, it feels spiritual in a weird way mm-hmm. and then when they do it's like a, a, a like notice of sin I, I do know that Brian mentioned that the one reason like they mostly just eat fish is because he started writing it that way and then just stuck with it. Yeah. Because it was like, well, why change it now? Again, like he found his comfort zone and stuck to it. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean we can't read more into it, but you know. Absolutely not. But like, again, like there is also that implication there of like the, the birds aren't always intelligent, but they are more intelligent, whereas fish aren't. And I like that you brought up the legend of like Jesus feeding the masses with the bread and fish. Um because, you know, like, he only had, like, three baskets of these bread and fish and yet managed to feed, like, over a thousand people. Um, it's funny you mention that because I actually brought that up in another discussion with friends the other day. <laughs> like, again, like, we are starting towards the Easter season. So it's like the, the Catholicism and the Christians are ramping up for one of their big important holidays. Yep. So Shrove Tuesday um, was the this past Tuesday to date mm-hmm. this recording. Um, mm-hmm. We have begun Lent. Uh, Catholics cannot eat meat except for fish on Fridays. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chevy had to go buy like stuff to make like fancy little lunchables for lunch on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> so the slaves had enjoyed a brief bit of rest. They know it's not going to last, but it's best to take advantage of it while they can. A mouse spots bad rain coming and alerts a puzzled Barkchon. They're like, okay, are, are we about to get it? Are we going to be told it's time to get back to work? So in the center of the slave compound, like standing smack in the center, bad rain speaks to the slaves in an almost gentle way. They've had their break, but it's back to work the next morning. Now they just need to line up next to their beds for a head count. They hasten to do so, silent and unnerved, as two of Badring's lackeys walk among them, tapping them with canes as they count. Like, they are absolutely intimidating them. Because um, these are, like, whipping canes. Mm-hmm. Hilgorse defends a small mouse and asks to know what this is all about. Badring identifies him by name, and then, one at a time, calls out to Barkjohn, Kayla, and then asks about Tulgru. Like, Bad Ring is making sure he knows what the ringleaders of this look like. Mm-hmm. So that he can, you know, pull them out when he wants to. Mm-hmm. And he asks Kaylee, he's like, you're an otter. You can tell me about another otter named Tulgru. Which Kayla refuses to show which otter she is. Yeah. Kayla's like, like saying, there's no Tulgru here. What? Yep. But upon a threat of death, T- Tulgru steps forward. He orders her to dig up under her sleeping spot, so she does. Until she's dug a pit she can stand in up to her waist. It's like half her height or more. Annoyed now, Badring orders his lackeys into it and her out of it so they can take over digging. After they dug down almost to their own height, a snappish Badring orders them out. There's clearly nothing there. The slaves snicker as one of the rats slips on their way out, causing Badring to turn on them and say that no one will be laughing with double the work tomorrow. After the tyrant leaves, Tulgru inquires to the others, where had the weapons gone? Kayla plays at confusion and Barkjohn calls him on it. Kayla's like, Kayla explains, what weapons? <laughs> yeah. Kayla explains that he'd spotted Droop spying, and once he and Tulgru were asleep, had gently moved her aside and moved the weapons. Like, she was so bone-tired that he was able to gently drag her mattress, and she didn't wake up. Where are they buried now? Barkjohn asks. 
Why, right beneath where Battering had been standing in the center of the compound. Back at the longhouse, Droop is pulled away from the table by a furious Battering. He hisses at the vole, saying he'd been made a fool of and ought to kill him. But no, he'd still use Droop. First off, though, he's to be taught a lesson. He orders rods brought and the doors barred so Droop can't escape. That evening, Clog sits by a campfire near the remains of his burnt-out ship. He won't be trusting Bad Rang still, so better a fire on the beach than a bed surrounded by enemies. Perfectly fair, you know, obviously. The hull of the sea scarab might still be salvageable. He's so focused on thoughts of repair, he almost doesn't notice the odd hare sat next to him. Not until the hare asks for food, and he jealously pulls his meal closer. He doesn't ask for food. He asks for a swig of the seaweed ale yeah. that Clog is drinking. And Clog is like, uh, no, this is mine. What the seaweed fuck ale. are you? Yeah, then realizes this isn't one of his crew. And they're like, boss, who the hell is that? Do you, do you want us to stab him, boss? So before he can be attacked, he yells, look at that, and throws something onto the fire to make it billow green smoke. Now convinced he's magic, they demand to know how he's done it. He asks for some ale, chugs it down, then plays at falling dead. Until he starts twitching, like he starts twitching from the legs and like the twitching moves upward. Like he's got something stuck in his throat. He opens his mouth and to the shock of the Corsairs starts pulling out a long rope of handkerchiefs. Like he shoves his whole hand in his in his throat, basically. Mm-hmm. Until the very last one, which has Clog's name written on it. Clogs asks how he knows that he's Clog. And Bala says he'd be amazed at what magic rabbits can know. This is aided by him pulling an apple from behind Clog's ear. Like, it's all very classic. Not Clog's ear, another, another vermin's ear. Yeah. Oh, okay. But it's all very classic sleight of hand. It's very funny. Now, thoroughly enchanted, Clog asks his name. Bala lies, saying his name is Tabir. What sort of name is that? Clog asks. And Bala explains it's simply rabbit spelled backwards. Clog asks for more magic and Bala says, alas, he can do no more. But if he does want to see more, he could bring his whole troop and put on a show. When asked when the show will be, he says tomorrow, just after sunset in yonder fortress. As long as it's sworn, none of his creatures will come to harm. Clog swears it on his stomach, which means more to him than his heart. <laughs> Actually, really like that part. Like, that part really <laughs> made me laugh. And with another flash of bright purple smoke, Bilal leaves the scene. It's like it's bright purple. It's like a, basically almost a flashbang and it leaves everybody mm-hmm. blinded so Bilal can just, you know, skitter off. Yep. It's questioned if they can trust the rabbit and Clog says, of course, the rabbit was his friend. Like, he's like, look, he called me Sweet Clog or Old Clog or something like that. Uh, um, uh, sweet Clogo. Yeah, Sweet Clogo. And I make a smart out comment of, they're both certainly glutton enough, gluttons enough to be friends. <laughs> Bala returns to his camp to teasing and praise. Mostly praise. He tells how the trick had worked and when offered three cheers, says he'd rather have three good meals and drinks to wash out that bad seaweed ale. He's like, they're not going to last long drinking that stuff. Oof. They spend the rest of the night practicing the show and tricks they're about to pull next. Further south, on the clifftops, we reunite with Martin and company, 
belly aching about their aching bellies. I love the chapter art for this one. It's so cute. It's like so I saw cute. her and I'm just like, oh, her little cap and who's this shawl. little mole wife? Grum apologizes for his grumbling stomach and Rose wishes for a scone to eat. And a scone appears, bonking off her head and landing beneath her nose. Grum takes it and bites in, saying it's still warm. She asks for a scone smothered in honey, and (laughs) they get a scone smothered in honey. Palum asks for one too, and when one comes sailing through the air to him, happily eats it. Martin is encouraged to ask for one too, and suspiciously grumbles how he'd like one with honey and some strawberry cordial. The scone hits his foot, and a friendly voice says she'll throw scones, but not her good beakers. Grum recognizes the accent and calls out that it's a mole like him. And indeed, a friendly little mole lady comes out of the bushes, introducing herself as Polykin. Hold on, I need saying, to read her description. She's so cute! Alright. A mole came plodding out of the darkness. She was dressed in an oversized mob cap and a huge flowery pinafore. And I'm just... I love, I love her. this little mole wife. I love Polykin so much. Saying how she'd just been out gathering up the scones to cool and heard some beast wishing for one, so she'd thrown it his way. Or her way, in this case. Rose thanks her, and Polykin offers them to come with her. Young things and travelers are always hungry, after all. They share their story with her as they head towards her home. And her home astonishes them built in a partially fallen down tree log held aloft by sturdy rocks. A mole lives in a tree. Grum was fucking astonished with it. Yeah. (laughs) She's just like, I do whatever I want. (laughs) Yep. Because she lives alone now. Her family has grown and gone. Her tribe is scattered to the winds. So she fears no beast and welcomes in whoever she pleases. She lays out a scrumptious dinner for them. All good food, all good drink, and all good desserts. Once they'd eaten their fill, Polykin admits that she hadn't seen Brome or Feldo. Rose wishes they are safe. Yeah, because while they're eating, like, all of them are, like, talking, and Polykin is just kind of listening to them all talk. Like, she's not really Mm -hmm. asking questions. She's just listening. Yeah. And once Rose wishes they're safe, though, Polykin says, aye, they're safe, sure enough. Rose asks, how does she know that? And the old mole admits that she can't really explain it. People, places, and faces all pass in and out of her mind. And she's like, oh no, she's a little prophetic mole, mom. She's got psychic powers. Magic old women in the middle of the woods passing out prophecies. What has the world come to? (laughs) I love her. I also love her. At least now, we've got the question answered. There are other creatures that can have, like, prophetic visions besides badgers. Or mice. Or mice. Remember, although she was influenced by Martin, so I don't know how much that counts. But the fact that we get a mole who gets to have this ability, there's something very sweet about it. Yeah. Um, Martin believes her. He'd felt she was special when they'd met. Martin, stop being able to sense magic. He is magic. He just doesn't know it yet. (laughs) She says indeed, and he can't help what he is, a warrior like his father. It'd be some time before he gets his father's sword back, but it doesn't make him any less of a warrior. She's seen great warriors in her day, but never any like him. 
With that said, she falls into a doze. Once the rest are all asleep, she touches their faces gently one by one, weeping quietly for the hardships she knows are ahead for them. She's comforted that she won't have to bear the burdens of others' lives for much longer. Her seasons are almost done. Like, she, they ask her for, like, more information, and she's like, it's not my place to tell you these things, because what if I'm wrong? Like, they can change. Mm-hmm. So you have to just live your life. I'm not going to influence that. That's um, a little later, but yes. Yeah, but, like, th- she, she very specifically is like, yeah, I can see these things. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> yeah, because they're not, they don't always come true. Yeah. Depending on, it's their, their what ifs. They are potentials. Yeah. Martin awakes the next morning and goes to wash his face in a little spring below the house. Pollykin bumbles past, happily reporting her morning forging haul. Palma appeared, looking into the basket and nodding hungrily. Hmm, they look lovely and fresh. The old mole wife slapped his paw away as he reached for a young button mushroom. Gird you, young yogurt. Old still toy, make thy breakfast. She does make a good breakfast for them. And even tries to tempt them to stay, speaking of her plans for lunch. Grum says sorry. They have to be moving on. Polly can knew it, but she still wishes they'd stay for a day or two more. At least two. Rose says they can't dawdle. They have to get to Noonvale to gather their army and mount a rescue. If Brom and Feldo are even still alive. Pollykin says yes they are. Hadn't she just said so last night? And no, she can't explain to Rose how she knows. She just does. And she also knows they shouldn't go straight to Noonvale. If they return to the fort, bad things will befall them. She won't tell them what misfortune, though. She doesn't trust her old memory and won't make a liar of herself. So Rose asks her something she can't answer. How do they get back to Noonvale? She's all turned around. And Pollykin gives Rose some bark cloth and charcoal and tells her to write down the directions as she makes packs of food for them all. Like, she's like, I can't write very well. You do it. And, and like, as she's explaining this stuff, like, Rose has to get her to repeat things multiple times. And almost begrudgingly, she's giving these directions. Mm-hmm. Because she doesn't and want them to go. She's lonely. And as she does, Palum quietly compliments what an amazing mole she is. And no matter what, he'd come back this way to taste her cooking again. He's gonna die. (laughs) He's not gonna die. When a character makes a promise like that, they're gonna die. Uh, Okay, think about this. Who's the dad of the big sturdy hedgehog at the beginning of the book who's friends with the traveling mouse? I don't think Palam is his dad. I think Palam is like his great-great-grandfather or something. Maybe. Yeah. Considering the time period they're in. Yeah. Okay, great. He He is the ancestor of the hedgehog we see in the beginning. I'm sure of that. Okay. Um, as Pollykin gets goes to get lunch supplies, Rose reads out the puzzling guide. Here they go. figure out they need the sun at their back to start with. We've got our first riddle quest! Huh? At least it says as, a bullshit Martin made up. Yeah. So our riddle quest is follow your front shadow, do not stop till you reach the one with dead three top. See the twin paths, beware of one, sweet as the spreading atop of a scone. A camp close by night, watch out by day, for the three-eyed one who bars the way. More you will not learn until meeting the warden of Marshwood Hill. Pollykin off having a quiet sulk due to their leaving, Rose sings their goodbye to her. 
When the song is over, teary-eyed Grum wonders if she'd heard it. Martin says yes, she had, as he catches a brief flash of Polykin's flowered apron and sees four pies tied to a branch for them to eat. They enjoy the treats, Grum complimenting the food, even through his tears. And we gotta read just the song. this... Yes, go ahead. Goodbye, my friend, and thank you, thank you, thank you. It makes me sad to leave you upon this summer day. Don't shed a tear, cry now. Goodbye now, goodbye now. I'm sure I'll see you somehow if I pass by this way. For the seasons don't foretell who must stay or say farewell. And I must find out what lies beyond this place. But I know deep in my heart we are never far apart. While I have a memory of your smiling face. Goodbye, my friend, and thank you, thank you, thank you. Your kindness guides me ever as I go on my way. Which is sweet. like such a sweet little song. Yeah. And it's, I feel like, I, I love that Brian wrote this character in because how many old folks do you know who don't have any family left or whose family has moved far away and they're so lonely, they just want company. Mm-hmm. Um, like I live in a retirement community. So like one of the big things people do is like, there's the food deliveries where they'll deliver food every day to the older folks and... Just like there's little things our community does to make sure that no matter what, no one is completely isolated or alone. Yeah. If they, if they're willing, someone will come and give them company. And that is really important. A big problem in uh, our like modern society over the past like hundred years, we've seen like the older, older members of families kind of be shunted off to the side because it, and it's not necessarily our fault, because especially in Western society with, like, the nuclear family, but also individualism and uh, the way that capitalism has made end-of-life care so fucking expensive, mm-hmm. it can be difficult to take care of these people, especially when they have nobody anymore. Exactly. So, like... If you know an old person, try to befriend them, unless if they're, like, super racist. (laughs) (laughs) If they're super racist, I understand. Yeah. Uh, So, we've reached the end of this part of the book. Time to do the questions. mm Mm-hmm. And what is your favorite weird food in this book? I think I want to try the shrewbread. Yeah, same here. I'm curious about it. Like that shrew nut loaf thing that they had. Like the I wanna try the food that the, the high beasts had, that the high beast mm-hmm. like uh society had. I think it would be really tasty. Because they're working with what they have and what they can gather and I want I wanna taste it. I want it. Put it in my <laughs> mouth. I also want every single fucking thing Polykin made. Yes, exactly. Gib. And I'm curious about the seaweed ale. I know I wouldn't like it. But I'm one of those people who are like, I will try something once. Yeah, it's like, part of me is, like, very curious how they actually make seaweed ale. Like, do they just use seaweed? Hold on. Google time. I'm guessing it would be, like, a very salty ale. Seaweed alcohol. Oh, there is actually a company called Maine Coast Sea Vegetables that makes seaweed spirits, both biofuel and booze. Interesting. Catalina kelp spirits. So it looks like they're making a liquor. Okay. Uh, seaweed gin. 
that's made in Austria. Interesting. There's seaweed-infused alcohol. Hmm. Interesting. It does look like a lot of this is like a liquor or a liqueur rather than like an ale. So let me try Googling seaweed ale. Seaweed ale from uh, Atlas Obscura. There is a dark brown ale that's made huh. from seaweed. Okay. Uh, there's. It's called uh, Kelpie. It's made by Williams Brothers Brewing Company. Uh, huh. There's also another. There's a whole Kelpie. list of seaweed <laughs> beer. <Kelpie. laughs> yes, Kelpie. <laughs> yeah. So seaweed beer is apparently a thing. It looks like the, that Kelpie one from William Brothers Brewing Company seems to be the most popular one that pops up because it's popped up multiple times in this one search, but it is not the only one. So that's interesting. I would try that. I'm not a big beer person, but I would try that. It says it has flavors of toasted malt, coffee, chocolate, and an unmistakable odor. Because <laughs> it smells like I'm... the ocean. Yeah, I'm sorry, but, like, most of the time when I hear, like, those indie brew suggestions and stuff, I'm just like, y'all are, I don't know where you're picking up these tastes. I just taste gross fermented wheat or whatever. Uh, my, my tongue can taste nothing but alcohol when it comes to drinking that kind of stuff, so I miss out on a lot of the undertones. Yeah, I don't like the flavor of beer because it typically tastes very alcohol. Um, unless of it, here's the thing. German beer I like because it okay. doesn't have the same because German beer from Germany especially when it's a flavored beer I've had a German pumpkin beer oh my god that shit was so good <laughs> because it didn't taste like beer American beer is piss yeah <laughs> honestly I don't I'm drink alcohol I can't really I'm say. not an alcohol person I just know this because I have tasted both because a lot of people in my family are, like, alcohol people. They're not alcoholics. They just like beer. And, like, one of my uncles is really likes German beer. And he was like, hey, try this. And I tried it. And I was like, oh, I actually really like that. And then the other uncle was like, have a Natty Light and see if you like that. And I immediately spit it out because I was like, this is disgusting. He was like, I know, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. All right. Were there any animals that appeared that surprised you or did an animal subvert expectations? Dolphins. The dolphin. Yeah, the fish, dolphin, whatever that was, was very, very weird. I mean, I it literally just existed. Like, it was a... I could have made a deus ex machina joke, but I didn't feel like it. Deus ex because, dolphina. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't even really one because it didn't really help anything. Because yeah, that's what they're just, supposed well, to do. No, they don't always help. It's there to move the plot along sometime, and Brian needed it there to split them up. Because, like, yeah, the boat would have sunk eventually, but the, the dolphin fish thing sped that up and split them up further. Okay, okay, hold on. So. I'm sorry that I always have to be right. <laughs> Deus Ex Machina is a uh, solution... Hold on. So a deus ex machina is when some new event, character, ability, or object solves a seemingly unsolvable problem in a sudden, unexpected way. 
It is supposed to be solutions to a problem. They are not unexpected developments to make things worse, nor sudden twists that only change the understanding of a story. This is from TV Tropes, by the way. Okay, well, in this case, it's not a deus ex, but it is literally the hand of God. Like this, you can... It, a little bit, it, yes. It, we can we can say that it is hand of yeah. God. Because you are pulled out of the narrative because you realize, oh, this is Brian having to insert something random to get them where he needs them to be. This is a rare case. Like, like he's been so good the past couple of books that, like, it, the fish is very jarring to us because it is so out of his... How, how good he's been doing mm-hmm. where it's like you can read... tell he just kind of went oh crap i need to get them separated fish i want to read the um the bit like the history of deus ex machina as a trope like where it comes from the term <laughs> i love latin... it it's so good the term is latin for god out of the machine and it originates in ancient greek theater it referred to scenes in which a crane machine was used to lower actors or statues playing a god or gods deus onto the stage to set things right often near the end of the play in its most literal interpretation this is when a godlike figure or power with all the convenient power that comes with that arrives to solve the problem a divine intervention need not always be a deus ex machina or the sole way this trope plays out however we've seen that with multiple deus ex burdenas mm-hmm in these books specifically um whereas this is not a deus ex machina but it is definitely kind of a divine intervention type vibe we should get it more into the habit of explaining the tropes that we keep talking about (laughs) maybe we should do like a special trope talk episode listeners if you want that let us know or actually you know you don't even have to do it like we don't even have to do it Watch Overly Sarcastic Productions. Red does an amazing batch of trope talks where she <laughs> explains what tropes are. And she does it better than we could in a more entertaining manner, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And she provides good examples. Um, I love uh, I love OSP. They're so good. Um, All right. Next question. Okay. What is your favorite part so far? Again? Polykin. <laughs> Polykin, but also I just love whenever... Clog and Bad Ring are interacting. Agreed. Very much so. I think like, that the bit, this bit at the end with Polykin, as well as every single part where Bad Ring and Clog are talking to each other. Also, when uh, Bala went and played the magical rabbit in their <laughs> camp. I think that was very funny. Uh, that was good comedy. Also, like, a magic rabbit. You know, it's the old joke of, haha, who's the magician, the rabbit or the man, you know? Um. And I added this. This is from an anonymous asker on Tumblr. This isn't a question, but it is a recommendation. And we, I am offering this recommendation to our listeners as well. Kit is going to make a face. <laughs> but from an anon on Tumblr, quote, Okay, but you should try roast dandelion root tea. Is nice and warm and nutty. I am going to try that when dandelions start popping back up. I'm going to let like some of them grow as big as I can and then harvest their tap roots and I will try it. Yes, I am aware that I can go buy this from the store already, but so many dandelions pop up around here. I am not going to do that. <laughs> that is my, a waste my, of money. My one big warning though is make sure to double and triple and check where you are 
harvesting your dandelions yes. from because if you live in an apartment building, you don't know if your boss, what kind of fertilizers or pesticides mm-hmm. your boss uses or your, not your boss, but you know, the, the, the landlord. Yeah. I'm not going to gather um, them from around my apartment. There is a park nearby and I'm probably going to gather them from, it's, mm, gonna, it's on an, the park is on an incline. And so I'm going to gather them from the top of the hill. All right. Because just, anything that would have been put there, especially after it rains, would have washed to the bottom of the hill. Yeah. Just be careful. Be very careful. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm aware. I'm saying, I'm, no, I'm, I'm saying this for our listeners. I'm not. Oh, yes, like, yes, yes. Yeah. Anytime. Like if, you, so fun, if you live but, out in the country and you own the property and you know exactly what's been going on, you should be fine. But if you live yeah. in the city or like, even if you go out to like, oh, it's like a city park. This is okay. Right. No. City parks have a lot of pesticides and stuff used on them to keep them. This one doesn't because it's a walking park. It is literally an old golf course. It's massive. They oh. just, it's, it's wildly different than all the other parks in my city. It's so weird. Okay. But when you're foraging, especially if you live in the city, some good tips for foraging is yes, there's a lot of greenery in and around ditches. Do not forage from around a ditch. You're getting all of the road runoff. So you're getting Mm. oil, pesticides, anything nasty. Those plants are going to be full of it. And you're going to, they're not going to taste good. Okay. They they actually make you sick. Do not gather from around ditches. Do not gather plants from the bottom of a hill or an incline. All, especially if it is just rained, that is where all of the runoff from the top of the hill going down like it has cleaned the whole hill all of that is now at the bottom so like animal piss more pesticides literally anything else poop uh you're not gonna avoid those things specifically like piss and poo like that's just animals exist gather from like the tops of hills and stuff do not gather too much you are either not the only person who's foraging and animals a lot of animals feed on these exact same things and dandelions are super important early pollinator flowers they are very hardy they grow very fast it's why i hate it when they get mowed over um i actually convinced my conservative father to mow less to let dandelions grow more (laughs) um so yeah, just be careful. Um, I do not know the differences between harvesting dandelion roots when they've gone to puffball stage versus when they're still yellow. I don't know if there's a difference. Uh, I know you cannot eat the puffball of the dandelion because it is no longer edible. It is a seed. But dandelion flowers, as well as their greens and their roots, are all edible. The whole plant is edible. Um, it's actually very good for you also. Um do, do your research. Sound. Do your do research. Do your research. Do your research. Um, also, there are like a bunch of sp- different species of dandelions. Like, there are so many different species of dandelions, y'all. <laughs> There's so many. So many. Um, but yeah, uh, look up what is native, edible, and forageable in your area, as well as non native forageables, because a lot of non native edible plants get used as landscaping my uh, apartment complex has mulberry trees and i always miss because the mulberry like mulberries have such a short window of harvest Mm -hmm. i always miss it or it's like our mulberry tree where they were bred to be this the 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 fruitless variety because we had these two fruited ones 
Yeah, we had these two beautiful mulberry trees that I loved in California. And they would always just, they were so nice in the summer because they had those big, beautiful leaves that would create such good shade. Mm-hmm. But they were the fruitless variety. So, you know, couldn't, couldn't bring any with me. Yeah. I'm actually <sighs> trying to grow wild forageables this year. I need to figure out what I did with all of my seeds, though. Yeah. Because I want to see if I can just grow them and then I can just have them. Um, yeah, my my dad made a good suggestion this year for my attempt at a garden. We're just going to go out and get like some five gallon buckets and mm-hmm. fill those up with dirt because that way I can get them out. And if the weather decides to turn, I can just emergency run them into the shop. Yeah. Because the weather here does do that. Like last year, March, April, May, in May, I took my friend Fluna off and like the day after we left, a snowstorm came screaming down out of the mountains. And I'm so grateful. My mom was on it. She got the plants covered with tarps and they survived, but it was just like, it's May. You had to stop this in April. That's the deal. <laughs> um, okay. Last thing. I know that she is not a villain villain, but is Queen Umbala a vampire or a werewolf? Werewolf. She leads a pack of wild, rowdy folks. <laughs> That's not even a question. I can see that. Yeah. And she, she has a regality <laughs> that like werewolf like matriarchs have mm-hmm. so i can see that yeah um, all right so are we, we good now? we did it okay so, so let's if you also that... want us to do an episode about foraging and plants and gardens please let us know yeah so that's uh we can make note of that for specials later on for when we need to take a break <laughs> uh yell about avatar and other related uh medias and talk about the, you know, like the white savior complex and other things like that. And how many movies we grew up loving are not great, but, you know, um, and then foraging, potentially. So... What was the other one? There was another one. Uh, tro- trope Talk. Trope, trope Talk, yeah. Yeah. So, thank you for listening to Abbey Archives. We are grateful you lent us your ears and we hope you enjoyed your time with us. This has been Kit. I can be found at Kitsy in a Box on most social medias. I make kits and days, although I might be getting a full-time job soonish, fingers crossed, so I don't know how much longer I'll be able to do commissions and stuff like that on the regular. Fingers crossed Um, for Kit to get this job. Thank you. It will be a very good job. It'll be full-time with benefits. By the time this comes out, maybe Kit will actually have got an interview to call back and shit. Oh, you've already gotten the interview. I got I've got the interview. The interview is on Monday. And Call he back. said he said something that has my hopes up because I asked him if I needed to bring any paperwork. And he goes, oh, no, we'll take care of that later. And then a brief pause. I mean, if we need to. So <laughs> I think, as long as I don't flub this interview, I think I'm in. You've got this. Um, You've got all the confidence of a um, mediocre white man. <laughs> you have I've all the confidence of a mediocre white man that you will get this job. Yeah. I've got, I've got seven years of cleaning up after mediocre white men. I've got this. Um, yeah. Let's see. Uh, Your turn. Uh, the, I've been Izzy. Uh, you can find me on Tumblr at Lots of Deer. Uh, you can find the actual play podcast that I do at Hope's Hearth Pod. And you can find Colchis at Colchis Pod on Tumblr, uh, as well as on Mastop- Mastodon. <laughs> Um, I do not run the Mastodon. One of our co-writers does. Uh, Many does a very good job with it. I understand nothing about Mastodon, but a lot of the content is very similar. It's just memes. <laughs> but memes. hopefully Colchis will be out by midsummer at the earliest. Uh, I also do commissions. 
You can find us both at Abbey Archives on Tumblr and Reddit. Uh, we do have a Twitter, but it's pretty much just there as a placeholder. I now deleted because, Twitter off uh, of my phone. I'm not looking at it anymore. It's I'm I'm kind of just staying because I'm fascinated to watch it fall apart. Like it's I'm, literally it's, falling it's, apart at the seams, and I am fascinated by it. Yeah. Um, also because you don't get good paleontological gossip if you're on you know any place other than Twitter right now. Uh, including the Dunkley Osteus getting shrunk, which is deli- the it delight. It did get of my- shrunk. It got <laughs> shrunk, and I'm delighted by it. Like it's just squeezed. It's still I, I, massive, but it's not as long. It, it's more of a tuna. It. Yeah, it's a tuna shark and not a megalodon shark. You know, it looks um, like a goldfish almost. It's very good. Um, so please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice, be that Apple, Google, you know, whatever podcatcher you use. Spotify, um, uh, Stitcher. Mm-hmm. Because the more reviews you give us, the more likely we are to get recommended to other people. And we like talking to you all. Um, that felt weird in my mouth. You all. Bleh, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so, may your hearth be warm and your heart be merry. From us to you at Redwall Abbey. All right. Anyone, anyone do the clap? Want to do it at the 50? Sure. If you meet an old mole wife in the woods and she tells you prophecy, you might be a main character. on social media you can follow us on tumblr and reddit at abby archives and if you would like to help support this podcast you can find us on coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash hs enclave this podcast is part of hearthside enclave and some other shows you might like are hope's hearth a solar hope punk actual play podcast and post-apocalyptic news radio a fallout inspired audio drama